Well, this is our final message in our series, Understanding the Bible. And uh, I trust that it has been a good 10 weeks for you. It has been for me. Be able to learn more about God's Word, how to study it better, how to understand it. And uh, does it mean after these 10 weeks we'll understand it completely? No, but hopefully you have some more tools that will help you understand it as you continue on in your journey as you study Scripture. Well, let me remind you of the goals we set as we launched out on this journey back in September. Uh, goals that I believe that are good ones to uh, set before us, especially in this series, but also too as you study God's Word. But that one goal was to take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is not just another book or mere ink on paper, but that it really is from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And I believe this goal has been accomplished as we spent five Sundays taking a look at things such as canonization and also the transmission of the text. And, and when we saw that the Bible is unique, no other book is like it. We saw that the Bible is accurate historically as well as in its, uh, its, its text. We also discovered, too, that the Bible is supernatural, and you probably knew that already, but affirmed, hopefully, in your life that uh, God's, God's Word is supernatural. No stuff only God would know. And then, uh, and then even though it was uh, written over a period of 1,500 years by 40, 40 or more people living on three different continents and also in three language, uh, done in three languages, it still has one single unifying theme throughout, and that is the coming of Christ. And then the other goal that we set before us during this series was to motivate, encourage, and challenge, and inspire people to read the Bible like never before. Because it is from God, and you will be given these tools, and hopefully you, you identify those tools and principles that will equip you <clears throat> to understand it better. And as we... Uh, continue on through today, we'll get a few more of those tools to be able to equip us in this. But we've been attacking this second goal since October 20th and uh, by unpacking several principles of hermeneutics. <clears throat> and so far we've talked about the principle of aim, the author's intended meaning, making sure that we keep that before us as we study Scripture. We also uh, looked at the principle of context, and when it comes to hermeneutics, context is king. And uh, as king, it must rule over our understanding of any passage. And when we take a passage out of context, uh, we, we lose the power and the truth and scriptural authority of what is being said there. And then we looked at the principle of observation as well. And uh, this principle is about approaching a biblical text like a detective, you know, taking your notebook out and, uh, and, and roping off the area with uh, yellow tape. And, and, uh, and then asking a lot of questions, looking at the, uh, uh, the, uh, all, all the evidence that's there and the clues and the meaning of the passage. So we're detectives when we get into God's Word and this principle of observation. Then we look at the principle of genre. <clears throat> and the Bible is full of many different types of genre. Wisdom, poetry, historical narrative, prophecy, law, gospels, epistles, a whole bunch of them. And uh, in fact, I heard last night that Zachary had to write a letter, or uh, not a letter, a paper on uh, genre. He's going through seminary, and he had to write a paper on that. And uh, he, he was telling me a little bit about that. But uh, it's something, though, that we need to keep in mind when we study Scripture, genre. We must interpret our passage in light of the genre it was written in, or we may get it wrong. 
you know, you want to make sure you're interpreting correctly there. So this is where we have been, and uh, this morning we will be looking at some final principles in understanding uh, God's Word as we wrap up this series. So let's get to it. Uh, one of the principles that uh, final principles here that we're going to be looking at is the principle of consistency. Principle of consistency. Now, this is where you ask yourself if your understanding of a particular passage is consistent with what uh, the rest of Scripture teaches. When it comes to the principle of consistency, there are two things to keep in mind. First of all, if your interpretation of a verse, you're looking at a portion of Scripture, and it might be obscure, it might be easy, but you're looking at a portion of Scripture and, and your interpretation of a verse, if it contradicts clear teaching elsewhere, then your interpretation is most likely wrong. You look in a portion of Scripture and you, you interpret it, but then you notice another portion of, uh, in the Bible there, you go, oh, wait, but I guess how does that work if it contradicts this? Then you better go back observe a little bit more, figure things out a little bit more, because your interpretation is most likely wrong. Obscure or unclear texts are to be inter interpreted in the light of clearer texts on the same subject. So you can go and, and, and through a lot of Bible helps and, and commentaries and stuff like that, you'd be able to check out what those are, those similar portions of scriptures are, and be able to compare and when there is no other text to which an obscure text can be compared, you should generally try to put the simplest possible meaning on the words. Don't go too deep into that when you are not quite sure. And keep in mind that it is unwise to build core doctrines based on your interpretation on obscure text, especially when those doctrines contradict clear teaching found elsewhere. It's the contradiction you've got to watch out for. For example, some... Some have built an elaborate doctrine based on this obscure and hard-to-interpret text uh, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. It says, Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? So based on this text, uh, there's a group of people who have adopted for 100 plus years the practice of being baptized for someone who is already dead. From their website, it says on their website as far as this, uh, this doctrine, it says, Jesus taught that baptism is necessary for you and for anyone who has ever lived to receive salvation. But there are some people who never had the chance to get baptized while they were alive. God is merciful and wants all His children to receive the blessings of baptism, and this is why we perform baptisms for the dead. During a baptism for the dead, a living, worthy member is baptized on behalf of someone who has already died. This sacred ordinance includes full immersion in water, just as a baptism is performed for a living person. Anyone who is at least 12 years old and is worthy can be baptized for those who have died. Hmm. I'll realize there, there's no other place in Scripture you see people being baptized for the dead. I don't recall seeing that anywhere. To interpret this obscure verse by Paul in this way contradicts the entire gospel message about personal faith, personal repentance, and personal confession. 
And it also contradicts Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that teaches that man is destined to die once and then face the judgment. I don't think there's go-backs. I don't think there's you can substitute that type of thing for people. It's, just, it's not supported in Scripture. So what is Paul teaching here? What is he, what is he talking about here in, in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Remember, context is king. So you look at the context of what's going on there in that portion of Scripture. All of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is Paul's powerful defense of the resurrection of Christ. He's speaking of that, trying to share that, trying to convince people of that. And he is responding uh, as a theologian to a spirit of skepticism that had emerged in the Corinthian church. He wanted to set it straight what resurrection was all about. Apparently, word had come to him that some people in the church were denying the resurrection. So Paul walks them through the, the implications of that decision. He says, if there is no such thing as resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, that means you're still in your sins. And if this is true, then those who have fallen asleep have perished. The dead are dead. We'll never see them again. It's all over. You see, Paul is using a form of argument uh, in which you argue in the other person's point of view and show the inconsistency of their position. And so that's where he gets to then in verse 29 of that chapter. So, in essence, he's saying, I know some of you people are out there practicing baptism for the dead, and at the same time saying that there's no resurrection. What in the world are you doing it for? Why are you doing this then? So, in other words, he's showing the folly of denying resurrection and practicing something that would depend on resurrection for it to have any meaning. But Paul is in no way endorsing the, the, the practice of bat, baptism by proxy. Uh, there's no scripture that supports that. So the principle of consistency is vital to proper interpretation. So if your interpretation of a verse, especially an obscure one, contradicts clear teaching elsewhere, then your interpretation most likely wrong. The other thing to keep in mind in this principle is that no verse can mean less than what it says, but it can mean more in light of other scripture. No verse can mean less than what it says, but it can be, mean more in light of other Scripture. For example, if you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it says, They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, in this verse, um, this verse can mean more in light of other Scripture. Because we can see that here, first of all, that belief is connected to our salvation, and so it cannot mean less than what it says. We read it and we go, yep, okay, good. But it also can mean more in light of other scriptures. Scriptures that talk about how repentance and confession are connected to, to our salvation, which gives us a fuller and more complete understanding. So as you check other scripture about this, it can give you a, a deeper uh, meaning from this. So no verse can mean less than what it says, but it can mean more in light of other scriptures. That's, that's a principle of consistency. Let's look at the next principle, the principle of figurative language. Figurative language. Uh, the Bible's full of it, full of figurative language. Uh, the definition for figurative language would be a word or phrase that is used to communicate something other than its literal meaning. The definition of figurative language. And this should not surprise us 
uh, knowing that uh, there's a lot of uh, figurative language in the Bible, because the Bible is written in, in language, and language is full of figures of speech. You've used them before. Maybe as a parent, you said, if I told you once, I've told you a thousand times, right? Or don't let the cat out of the bag. Or maybe, maybe you use the phrase, if I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. Or maybe like today, if it gets worse in the weather, you'd be saying something like it's raining like cats and dogs, right? So yeah, you know, I told you once, I told you a thousand times. I've, I've told you many times, and you're still not understanding. That's the truth that's communicated there. The truth is communicated in the other ones, uh, you know, let the cat out of the bag. You know, don't give up that secret. Don't give away the secret. Heard straight from the horse's mouth. You know, got it from the original source. Cats and dogs raining like that. It's coming down loud and, and hard. So there's, there's truths that are communicated in figurative language. Let me give you uh, uh, some reasons, though, why the Bible uses figurative language. Good reasons here and that it's used. First of all, it adds richness to language. Adds richness to language. If you consider a portion of Scripture that says, the Lord is my rock. Well, that, that gives us a, a, a big, deep, rich picture of who God is in our life. Another reason why the Bible uses figurative language, it attracts special attention. It attracts special attention. Think of the Scripture that says, the tongue is like a fire. <laughs> Whoa, okay, what's that going to be like? And so you read further. You're interested. It attracts you to that portion of Scripture. It, it helps you pay attention to what is going to be said there in James. And also, too, uh, this kind of uh, language makes uh, abstract ideas more concrete. It makes abstract ideas more concrete. God's care and compassion, as you read in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, says, The eternal God is your refuge, and His everlasting arms are under you. So you get this picture of God just coming around you and supporting you and keeping you safe. It makes abstract ideas more concrete. It also aids in memorization. Some of you Bible quizzers probably came across this a number of times in Scripture. And, uh, but like in Isaiah 40, verse 31, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So the idea of the eagle soaring gives you that, that um, memorization tool, remembering that scripture. It's also, it abbreviates an idea. It abbreviates an idea by stuffing great truths into a powerful package. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. There's a lot in that right there. The Lord is my shepherd. And then finally also too, it encourages reflection. If you read Psalm 1, you get that a lot. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. It's all that, that portion of Scripture in Psalm 1 just speaks about those things and helps us reflect on that. So again, that definition of figurative language, a word or phrase that is used to communicate something other than its literal meaning, you can also add to that to the end of that, but the truth of it, the truth it communicates is literal. So the truth is literal that, that's being communicated there. Like the tongue is destructive. It is a fire. It is destructive. God is a place of safety and security. Trusting in God really does sustain us and gives us strength. So there are truths that are, that are mentioned in there and conveyed there that are literal. 
And figurative language helps us in our understanding of the, of, of the Bible and Scripture. And, uh, another principle to consider, the principle of progressive revelation. Principle of progressive revelation. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, this first three verses, says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So, who do you think has more authority when it comes to Scripture, the prophets or the sun? <laughs> who do you think spoke with a greater understanding of the full and complete revelation of God? The prophets or the Son. Uh, when we interpret Scripture, we need to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We need to interpret the lower in light of the higher, the incomplete in light of the complete. We need to interpret the shadow in light of the, the, the reality. We need to interpret the promises in light of their fulfillment in Christ and in His church. So in other words, the New Testament is the hermeneutical standard. You look at the New Testament and how it speaks about those Old Testament portions of Scripture. So if Jesus, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, John, Paul, Peter, all those others say that, that this is what an Old Testament promise or prophecy means, that is what it means. We interpret the old in light of the new. So that's the principle of progressive revelation in a nutshell. Another principle is the principle of caution. Principle of caution. When you study Scripture, be careful. Let me ask you this. Is the diet of a newborn baby any different than the diet of a 24-year-old? <laughs> of course it is. Why? Because there are so, some things that, that a two-month-old is just not ready to eat. Last night, we had the privilege of babysitting Ransom. And Amanda and Zach were able to go off and, and uh, watch, uh, see a musical over at uh, Westland High School. Someone from their church was part of it. So we had Ransom over, and we were able to have him there. And, of course, we needed to have some food for him. I couldn't just go in the refrigerator and rip out some old pizza and say, here you go, gnaw on this for a little bit. I could, I guess, but I wouldn't, wouldn't see Ransom again for a number of years, I'm sure. But uh, he needed the milk. He needed that, that, that formula and that milk that helps him sustain him at this point. Babies eat milk. And if your name is Elliot, you spew it all over your father. <laughs> Some of you who are here for the baby dedication realize what went on. But can someone, I mean, can something we eat, can something we eat ever mess us up? <laughs> And some of, some of you understand that. Some of you can't eat some certain foods. Your body reacts in certain ways. You like the food, but your body doesn't, right? The thing I'm getting at here is that there's something scarier than, than people in the church not reading and studying the Bible at all. It's when people start feeding on anything that is out there, in books, on the TV, podcasts, going to conferences, you got to be careful. You need to be careful about what you feed on. So the principle of caution. 
in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. So if you're kind of new to the Bible and don't, don't know where to go, don't start in Daniel. <laughs> don't do that. Don't, don't start in Revelation. It's going to be very, very confusing to you. Begin with maybe John or with Mark, the Gospels. And then maybe move to there from the, you know, the book of James or maybe any of the, uh, you know, the epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, all those that help you learn how to grow as a Christian. And don't forget, Genesis is a good one to, to be able to read as well, too. But the principle of caution is a good one to follow. Be sure to practice that. Then the next principle, principle of priority. Principle of priority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul is writing the Corinthian church, and he says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So do you see and do you hear what Paul said in those verses? He's telling us that there are some truths which are of first importance. First importance. What are those of first importance truths? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, as he states there in, in verses 3 and 4. Those are of first importance. The Bible is not a flat landscape. It has great variety and, and contour and, and all. There are, there are mountain peaks, there are ridges, there are valleys. There's a lot of terrain in the Bible in that way. Even though every word of the Bible is important, not every word is equally important. I hope you are hearing me correctly. Even though every text contributes to the whole, not every text is of equal weight. For example, the Apostle Paul goes on, you know, he, he, he spoke regarding both the resurrection of Christ, but then he went on in other times too to speak about jewelry, jewelry for, for women. Uh, he talked about braided hair for women as well too. And it's like, uh, is that as important as a resurrection? I don't know. And if anybody can help me say jewel, jewelry, I, I hope you help me. But are those topics of equal importance? Not really. Not really. We can agree to disagree regarding how women wear their hair or whatever it is. We can agree to disagree about those things. But to disagree regarding the resurrection, that could prove fatal. So does that mean that parts of the Bible have no value? That's not what I'm saying. It just means that some parts have more value than others. For example, behind me are three uh, denominations of our money. Dollar bill, $5 bill, and a $10 bill. Nobody take those pictures. Don't want anybody counterfeiting these things, so please don't do that. But anyway, which bill behind me has the greatest value? The dollar, the five, or the ten? Tyson has an answer right away. The ten. You would like to have one of those, wouldn't you? That would be nice to have. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. That is more important than those tens, I guess. 
So looking at that, you, see, you know, of course, yeah, the 10 has, of those three, the 10 has more value than all of them. Does that mean that the other two have no value at all? No. I mean, Tyson, if you didn't get a $100 bill, would a dollar bill be okay? Yeah, you'd be fine with that too. So it has value still. They just have different values. You know, the wise Bible student knows which verses are dollar verses and which are $10 verses or $100 verses, however you want to say it. The good student majors in the majors and minors in the minors. They look at Scripture and they realize, ah, this is of first importance. And if we are not careful, we could end up getting this backwards, just like the religious people did in Jesus' day. In Matthew 23, we hear about it. Verses 23 and 24, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So if we are not careful... We may find ourselves, just like them, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Be very careful. Realize, Scripture has value. All of it has value, but there are more. There's ones that have more, of more importance, and we need to be paying attention to there. So focusing on, spending our time and energy on something obscure and hard to understand, while ignoring the things that are easy to understand and that are of higher importance and of greater value, that God talks about all throughout His Word, these things, these things like love, faith, humility, compassion, forgiveness, serving others, giving, and sharing of our faith, these things of, uh, are of most importance. And so Scripture that points to that, we need to be following those things, paying attention to those things. So remember the principle of priority. Then there's the principle of application. Principle of application. In any study, you want to get to that part, right? You look at a, a, a portion of Scripture, you read it, and you go, okay, well, what does this mean to me? How can I apply it to my lives, my life in, in these days? And the goal of application is to take a text written to a specific group of people in a certain place, facing a particular situation, and then use that text to deal with a contemporary issue in our life and time. That's the application. That's the goal of application. Exegesis identifies the principles from the text. You, know, you get into it and you, you search, and you find out, and you discover those principles from the text. While application places those principles in modern context. So application helps us trans, translate those principles we find in Scripture into today's language. What are we doing today with these principles that we find in God's Word? In other words, we draw a timeless truth from a time-bound text for a timely situation. Timeless truth from a time-bound text for a timely situation. So, if we have situations that are similar, we can use the text's specific commands and apply it to our, our modern situations. We look at the Scripture and we can compare and go, yep, that, that works. For example, uh, some specific commands that uh, still find some uh, similar situations today. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do we still have husbands around? Yeah. Do we still have wives? Sure. 
And so that relationship is still there. Husbands ought to love their wives, just as Christ loved the church. We can apply that to today. Matthew 18, verse 15, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Do we still have situations like that going on? Sure, we do. And we can still apply this portion of Scripture pretty easily. Ephesians 6, 1, <laughs> Children, obey your parents. Mm, better believe that can be applied today. <laughs> oh, yes. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And children are going, yeah, that still applies to today, Dad. Come on. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance, grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Is the uh, issue of forgiveness, if, uh, forgiveness still needed today? <laughs> it is. We still have these things where people... Um, offend us, do things against us, we still need to have that area and level of forgiveness. So the Scripture translates pretty easily. As well as Ephesians 4.19 where it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful to build others up according to their needs. Do we still talk? Do we still communicate to people? Yes. Do we need to be careful how we communicate? Yes. So this portion of Scripture translates really easily as far as the application goes. Now, if the situations are different, this is where we need to do some work to uncover the general principle that, that rests within the text. you probably come across some of these portions of Scripture. Uh, for example, here, here's a couple of them. Like one, Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Hmm. <laughs> now, if we did that next Sunday, would, I have the same, would it have the same meaning as it did back then? Um... You'd be saying, what do you mean by kiss? <laughs> you know, even though it's mentioned four times in Scripture, it would still be kind of creepy. <laughs> Think, uh-oh. Now Rod's our head usher. <laughs> you want him to lay a big one on you there. Other than Kim, it probably would uh, creep us out <laughs> a little bit. Maybe not. I don't know. You can do that, Rod, if you wish. you got the big old beard going on. It'd probably tickle us and everything else. It'd be great. <laughs> uh, yeah. The holy kiss. It meant a warm, welcoming, and friendly greeting. So how could we apply that today? A handshake. <laughs> maybe a hug. Maybe a hug. Sure. Maybe a smile. At least that. <laughs> Maybe, how are you doing? And, and to ask the question, not just use it as a greeting, but how are you doing? And wait for the answer. Find out. Warm, welcoming, and friendly greeting. How about this other one from John uh, chapter 13, verse 14? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Yeah. <laughs> Daddy's saying, you don't want to do that in my family. <laughs> Today it would mean I am honoring you. But back then, it was just a servant doing his job. It was an act of service. So what are some ways maybe that we could apply that same principle today? Uh, you know, Maybe serving in places in ways that others don't want to serve. Because, you know, washing the feet is not the greatest thing sometimes. 
<laughs> Especially if my daughter Brianna has to do it. <laughs> the idea here, though, is, is, the, uh, is serving one another in areas where maybe no one else wants to do that. Going out to the homeless. Serving them, bringing them a coat, bringing them food. Helping them in their situation. Maybe helping them out of their situation. Going to places and, and, and serving in ways where people just go, yeah, just, that's ah, not me. Ah, you know, someone else can do that. Someone else has to. Someone else has to wash the feet. Who will step up to do that? The goal of biblical interpretation is to discover these principles and, and appropriately and humbly suggest actions that in our day will allow the body of Christ to live, uh, live out these commands and also these principles in our everyday life and interactions. So we go to Scripture. It's kind of different up here. We need to do some work on that to find out why is it a holy kiss? What does that mean? We need to find out what does it mean about washing feet and, and then translate it over to today. What does that mean? It doesn't mean literally doing those things. And the flow of application should go like this. It should go from our head to our heart and to our hands. It should flow in that direction. Scripture should. It should flow in the way where it goes to what we know, to what we believe, to what we do. And we do these things because of what we believe and what we know from Scripture. That's the flow of application. Mark Moore, a theologian, he said, Simply put, we don't correctly understand the Bible until we do what it says. That is not to simply say that can, uh, that can understand something intellectually and not obey it. I'm suggesting that true understanding involves existential involvement so that you don't correctly understand something until you practice it. So, you know, for example, in driving, you can take driver's ed classes. You get it all up here. You get all the knowledge and everything else until you actually get behind the wheel. And then you really won't understand, you know, until you do that, you won't understand the, the true reasons and, and abilities of driving. Same thing happens in marriage. You know, premarital counseling, you talk about it, you go through the principles, the ideas, and everything else until you say, I do, and finally get into that relationship and into marriage, then you realize what it means to work out those things, what it means to apply those things. Forgiveness. Another thing, too, we could look at Jesus' teachings about forgiveness, but if you've never been in a situation where you actually had to forgive somebody, you really don't, don't have the idea of, of applying that and how it works scripturally. We get into that, actually forgiving. Then, then we, get the, we, we understand it. So that's the principle of application. <clears throat> Something that you need to live Scripture out, and you need to embrace it. And again, that flow of application from the head to the heart to the hands is very important. That moves us on to the principle of obedience. And the last principle we'll look at here in wrapping up our series of understanding the Bible. <clears throat> now realize application is the understanding of how to live out a particular passage of Scripture. So understanding how to live it out. Obedience is actually living that passage out in your life. Actually doing it. Application shows you how obedience is that you do it. There might be portions of Scripture that we can understand how to live out, but it takes obedience to actually live them out. For example, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's plenty of, 
of Scripture there that we can look at and go, yeah, that's good. I understand that. I believe it. Are we going to be obedient in doing it? Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're supposed to let others know what's inside us, what God has done for us. Are we doing that? Matthew 5.44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's a tough one. Define the enemies in your life. Who are those people? And are you praying for those who persecute you? Are you praying for them? Are you loving your enemies? And then you got to think, okay, what does it mean to love my enemies? Good scripture study right there. Matthew 6, 34. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you worry? You know you're not supposed to. But when it happens, hopefully the scripture comes to mind. You go, ah, God's got this. I got to remember, God's got this. Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Do to others what you would have them do to you. In everything. Do we do that? Are we obedient? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, a whole chunk there. Bunch of stuff there. Rejoice always. How's that going for you? Pray continually. Is that working? Give thanks in some circumstances. Oh, wait. All circumstances. <laughs> Is that working? How's the obedience level in these portions of Scripture? And then one that I just, I love, Romans 12. Romans 12. Verses 9 through 21 speak of so many things. I'm just list that. Just go ahead and list that portion of Scripture and uh, look back on that and see the different verses that are speaking to your heart about what you need to be doing as a Christian, as a Christ follower. Good things in there. You know, it's one thing to understand how to apply Scripture to our lives, but it's an, an entirely different beast to actually obey Scripture. We can read it and go, that is good stuff. Then we don't do it. <laughs> James talks about that, by the way. Here's, a, here's kind of what that would sound like if we used it in the form found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if I memorize the entire Bible and can read both Greek and Hebrew but do not apply it to my life, I know nothing. If I understand theology, philosophy, and sociology, but do not live out the words in the text, I prove nothing. If I can fathom all mysteries and solve all problem passages, but I do not love God or my fellow man better, I accomplish nothing. Gordon Fee said, author of Bibles, Understanding the Bible for All It's Worth, he said, we are convinced that the single most serious problem people have with the Bible is not with a lack of understanding, but with the fact that they understand most things too well. The problem with such a text as do everything without complaining and arguing, found in Philippians, for example, is not with understanding it, but with obeying it, putting it into practice. I think we get a lot of those scriptures just kind of stuck there between our 
our heart and our hands, not quite ready to do it. And the obedience level needs to increase. We need to settle it right there with God that whatever He tells us in His Word, we're going to do it. You know, it seems like life goes a lot better when we do that. <laughs> God tells us what to do and how to do it um, so much better when we follow His promptings and His leadings from His, His Word. If we don't apply what we study in God's Word, it is a waste of time. You're looking just to study God's Word, just to get the head knowledge. and You know, there's some Bible quizzers that I've run across in, in the years that I led Bible quizzing before. Not here, not in our church. But uh, there have been some that I've seen and experienced that they memorize Scripture just to get the best score, just to get the trophy, just to get the accolades. And the thing is, is that that shouldn't be our goal of studying Scripture or memorizing God's Word. We should be ready to put it into practice, studying it. So if we do not obey the Word of God, if we don't obey the Word of God, we do not love God. Now, that's a harsh statement. But if you read John chapter 14, verses 15 and also 23 and 24, you hear it. It says, If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So if we don't obey the Word of God, we don't, we don't love God. So if you say you love God and you're not obeying Scripture, there's, there's a disconnect there somewhere that needs to be repaired. If we don't obey the Word of God, we don't know God. We don't know God. 1 John chapter 2 tells us in verses 3-5, through 5, We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. So do you know God? If you do, you must be obeying his commands. You must be obeying his word. If we do not obey the word of God, also too, and finally, we will never experience true freedom. If we do not obey the Word of God, we will never experience true freedom. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 tells us, To the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said, If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, it's in reaching, it's, 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 it's studying, it's understanding, it's applying and obeying God's Word is, is how we get to know God. It's how we get to love Him better. It's how we get that experience of true freedom. When we put His Word into practice, when we obey His Word. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us in one last song. And as they do, I just want to read one more portion of Scripture to kind of wrap things up here for this series. 
<clears throat> and also, too, just to let you know, if God's speaking to your heart in some way, and you, you need to come pray. You can come pray. There's nothing better than to get right with God and be, be confronted with scriptural truth and respond to it. But in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 13, it says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the, world, for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. I trust that God's Word is speaking to your heart, and if you want to respond in that way, the altar's open, and you can, you can come and pray. There's an obedience level in your life as far as God's Word's going. You want to get that right, drive a stake in the ground today and say, you know, today I'm, I'm, I want you, Lord, to help me through this. I want to obey your word. I know your word, but I just haven't been able to get it from my heart to my hands. Do it. And I really want to do that. So if, if God's speaking to you in some way, in that way, or whatever, you need to pray. I'm going to let you know the altar is open as we sing.